This week on the Twin Geek Cast, the boys are live and in person in Portland. We discuss Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious. Meanwhile, we look at the good boys from 47 meters down at the box office. The Twin Geek Cast theme is provided by AndrewNapierMusic.com. Hey everyone, it's Friday. It's Calvin here with David. Hey, David here again for another week, and this is a very special podcast actually this week, because this will be the first time we're recording together live. It's very awkward, because we have to face each other in person, and we're just sitting on the same couch, and we're holding hands, which is (laughs) very strange for a podcast atmosphere. We really do need a HR department. I know, your hands are a little sweaty here, it's a... (laughs) It's quite warm in this room without the air conditioning going either. I know, and I was getting really clammy while we were watching it, so it was really difficult to hold hands the entire movie. Yeah. But it helped me feel better during it, you know, it's I know. Like <laughs> tense at times. There were a couple suspense scenes where it definitely benefited. <laughs> anyway, I'm so glad that you could uh, come down here and join me at my uh, nice abode here for this uh, brief weekend. Yeah, we have a wall of movies here, most of them anime, which is interesting. <laughs> we have a lot of... Uh, what do you have, Castle in the Sky? Yeah, it's all the, the Ghibli movies there on my fiancé's side of the wall. It's just interesting. I thought you'd have Criterions, but it's just a wall of Disney movies. Well, of course they're in there. They're spursed out. Mm-hmm. But that, that was some of the immediate things you did when you came in here. You kind of <laughs> remarked at the, the giant wall of movies and the posters everywhere and the, the general setup of my place, as you do when you visit someone's house. Well, this house is really cinematic, too. I feel like you have little props and movie uh, ephemera all over the walls, which I, is which is welcoming if you're... You I know. do. I, I have all sorts of stuff here. We, we can kind of briefly describe some of the things we have here. Like, I've got obvious things. Like, there's a Wilson volleyball sitting on top of my movie shelf. As Must well as have. Some uh, pop figurines of, like, Ash uh, and such. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you have all kinds of garbage. You have lots of pop figures here. A couple, a couple. Only a couple. I don't endorse pop figures as an institution. It's mostly, like, the, the big ones are, like, the 90s TV ones, like my Pinky in the Brain and Goliath pop figures, because what, what other place do you get merchandise for those things? Right. I mean, Pinky in the Brain industry. I, we always had, like, a poster over my bed when I was a kid. It was, like, Pinky in the Big Man Suit. Oh, like, yeah, I remember that episode. Like the gigantic <laughs> pinky, and then mm-hmm. just, yeah, the brain in there. That's a that, that's always funny. It's actually a reoccurring suit thing, I think, where they, they bring out the man suit a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that was my dad and my favorite when I was a kid. I, we loved Pinky and the Brain. I agree. That's one. It's uh, Of all, all the nostalgic TV shows I bought, that's the one I actually rewatched the most. Like, yeah. I didn't just buy it to, to relive that memory once I actively love the show. Yeah, there's shows people don't watch here, like Community. <laughs> None of our staff watches it. Well, there's lots of other, like, you know, 90s stuff. Like, I bought, like, uh, Darkwing Duck and such. Which Daria? Is show I love. Yeah, Daria <laughs> uh, as well. That was a, a Are you MTV a big one. Beavis and Butthead? I was not. It's actually, that's my, you know, my fiance's uh, show. She showed me Daria, which I love because I have this weird uh, affliction with those, those kind of uh, hard-edged women that don't take any bullshit. <laughs> yeah. And I, and whenever I watch something like Daria or similar things, I'm like, man, these women just have my number, but I know I would not put up with that in person. I wouldn't want to actually be with that kind of person. No, I think it's a lot that people can internalize that person, but they don't want to hang out with them too long. It's good to it's good to know what things, like where, where you draw the line in terms of 
what you find attractive versus what you actually want to live with. Because that's some things, like, I hear about all the time, um, you know, when you think about the kind of uh, Marilyn Monroe-ish kind of, you know, hot girls or whatever. Like, you're the kind of girls that turn the room, you know, turn heads in every room. And then when you actually get that girl, like, that's the girl you want after, but then you shame her for being a slut or whatever when you're actually with her. You're like, I don't like men ogling you. You're like, dude, that's why you wanted her. Some like it hot, but others just... (laughs) Anyway, yeah, uh, we can take a look at what we have for the box office this week, what little we have since we're recording before the weekend's even over. Well, I guess we should say that uh, I had a a fairly pleasant trip down, except uh, on the way here... My dog turned away from me, and he took a giant <laughs> yeah. dump. It was about half his body weight, so about 15 pounds of a dump. And I like, I had to bag it up, and it was like mushing into the sea. It was really grotesque. Yeah, you texted me that on your way down, and that was just... I remember because I told my fiance that as well, and she, I said, oh, he took a dump on the seat. And, I thought, <laughs> and she thought I said he jumped out of the seat. Well, I went to the... Like nearby Jack in the Box, and I was like, "Can I get some wet paper towels?" And, like, <laughs> and the first lady's like, "No, we don't no. sell those." And I was You're like, so- "I don't want to buy them." <laughs> finally, she got someone who spoke English. I mean, no offense to her, but I really needed some towels. This was an emergency situation. Well, right when you get giant poop stains on your car. Yeah, I mean, it was it was nasty, but I got him out for a walk, and now we're down here in Portland, which is yes, like the like the lesser of Seattle. Uh, I mean. I digress, but... <laughs> the second Seattle. It'd be much nicer. We haven't actually gone into Portland yet today. We're going to do that after we wrap up the podcast here, and then once we do, maybe you'll change your mind. I don't know. There's a lot of nice things to check out. Have you seen the Portlandia where they go to Seattle and try to recruit people to come to Portland because they all left? Is that actually an episode? Yeah, it's no? a good one. I haven't seen that one. I, I'm, I've still got to get around it. I should watch it being a Portland resident, but... You should. Well, you're you're barely Portland. I mean, it Vancouver's kind of like, its own thing. I'm out of outside of uh, Portland. You know, I don't have to worry about the Oregon tax residency payment, but I get all the benefits of you know living right next to Portland. I just hop over the bridge, and bam, I'm there, and I can do anything I want. Better way to do it because you don't have to deal with how weird Portland is. Right. Well, I didn't have to change like all my license and you know dr- driver's license plates and stuff and all that, which is nice. Yeah. He's just moving um, from one place in Washington to the other. Then I brought him here, and he took a big dump in the kitchen. He did. He great. did take a dump in my kitchen as well. <laughs> it was a big dump. Your your dog is fairly sizable in the amount of poop he takes. I think it was like twice more in the car. It was, <laughs> it was a mess. I don't know how he poops so much. I just... I mean, he has... At least he's regular. I'm glad he's moving. I guess. This must be riveting for everyone out there listening to hear the stories of your dog's many poops (laughs) on this trip. Did you come here for movies? Too bad. (laughs) I suppose now would be fair to turn our attention to the sort of box office we have here, yeah? Yeah. Alright, this one, so, we're recording on a Saturday, so... It's kind of predictive, we're looking at the first opening day numbers. Yeah, which I imagine, you know, a trend will follow from there. At the very least, it gives you a good idea of what's new. Really, that's what you're listening for anyway. Who cares what stays at number one or two slot between each week, right? Yeah, and the great thing this week is it's our first week without Marvel. Maybe, like, since March... Um, maybe since 2008. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe since then. Um, and it might not shake out that way, but we might start at 11 because we're not sure what will accumulate over the weekend here. Right. Well, I know as well you want to kind of mention 11 here because it is kind of 
tanking, surprisingly, and that's uh, number 11 here is Where'd You Go, Bernadette, which is the new Richard Linklater film. <laughs> yeah, he's fallen off. Um, I, I, I had so much anticipation. It's a good book. Um, I feel like it's a genre book uh, about a lady who goes lost in Seattle, so we thought we'd briefly highlight that it's a local resource. It's kind of interesting how we're having a lot of local resource, because we got our, our next one as well as the Seattle film here, and that's interesting. Is, is the film industry coming more to Seattle now? Um, I'm not sure if it's all coming to Seattle or they're just going to keep dropping us in like in CG, like Chronicle eventually. Mm-hmm. Like I, I wonder if like most of these are, you know, we have the little scenery shots and then it's Vancouver the rest of the time. Right. right. Other, other Vancouver, not the one we're in right yeah, now. Yeah, nobody shoots here. Because <laughs> it's brown and flat and near Portland. But, but at, at 10, we have The Art of Racing in the Rain, which yes, more Seattle. starts in, like, Yakima, and he picks up the dog on the way from the racetrack, uh, and he's like, oh, he's a pick of the litter, and they're like, we want to keep this one, so he has to pay extra, and uh, he names it Enzo after Ferrari. Uh, his name's Denny Swift, so you know that he's a racer. Right, and last week you were saying, well, he's... The dog is Kevin Costner, right? Yeah, which is like the uh, rom-com mainstay of the 90s put into dog form. That's <laughs> that's a interesting twist. I mean, it's not really a twist. They even give up like the ending at the start of the movie. He's like, I hope to be reincarnated as a human. Spoilers. That's what happens. I just remember that. There's like a slew of dog films with all those other ones. Dogs, Purpose, Dogs, Way Home, whatever. And they're all about reincarnation. Are these all, like, Buddhist dogs running around? I think dogs are very Buddhist creatures. If they, you know, I feel like they have that uh, humbleness to them. And that I feel like we could project those ideas onto them because they have that um, way of life where they're, you know, they rely on us, but then they're so humble and so giving no matter what we do. Oh, well, your dog's certainly giving of something. Yeah, he gives big shits. <laughs> All right, uh, at number nine here, we have a new film uh, coming in, Blinded by the Light, which uh, earlier in our podcast series here, I uh, poo-pooed on a little bit because it seems very similar to yesterday, I thought. But I've actually been hearing a lot more positive things about it than I have yesterday, which is good, I think, because, you know, uh, it's got a great Bruce Springsteen track, you know, track list, it sounds like. Yeah, and yesterday, finally, out of the charts this week, so it's good to have a replacement that seems to have a little bit more depth, and it's based on the personal memoir of a guy who found, uh, he was in London, but he's Asian guy in London, is that right? Uh, no, I believe he's a Pakistani. Okay, Pakistani um, in London, perhaps? Yeah, I'm gonna, let me pull up the film here as well, because I did listen to a little bit, the director, um, was recently on a, uh, podcast we listen to she's a you know uh indian born uh woman who lives in who grew up in england what's her name Gunrider chada G- Gu- i don't i don't want to pronounce it because i'm awful at this that's not correct what calvin just said either but <laughs> it's closer than i'm gonna try and she did stuff like uh bend it like beckham uh, mm. was kind of one of her beasts a big first ones to come out and she had met this guy earlier the the author of this biography it's based on and she had always had a lifelong love. Maybe she's the one from London. I might have listened to the same she, podcast. She is, yeah. So uh, they shared this love for Springsteen, which is weird because he's American and uh, it doesn't always fit. And so she was always really surprised that nobody would really accept that she was a Springsteen fan. Well, everyone kind of, I mean, that's the thing is that Springsteen, uh, despite his kind of interesting um, 
political image as well has always been kind of this embodiment of an all-American blue-collar image, even though, uh, kind of ironically enough, that's never the person he kind of was. <laughs> he was a hippie growing yeah, up. He was a hippie is, in New which, Jersey. Which is also weird because he calls himself the boss, which none of these communities should like. Because <laughs> they're, they're all like, hey, we want to be in the union. Mm-hmm. Well, but regardless, his music has really, you know, reached down to those, um, you know, people. And, like, he's become this American icon for so long. And so a kind of story where you, you know, kind of view... Uh, America through the lens of Bruce Springsteen's music that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, um, I think it's fun to see like a foreign lens on that too. So I'm I'm interested. It seems like something I'll definitely see in video. Um, there's a lot out lately though. So. Yeah, well, finally it seems like we're getting things that are a bit more interesting. What like eight months into the year? <laughs> what What were they doing the last eight months? <laughs> I don't know. We got like. There's a reason I've only been out to the theater like five times this year. Do you think it's like we had Endgame and they said, well, maybe we should push this back and hold it so it doesn't get eaten? That's that's a good possible way of looking at it, I suppose. But even then, there's not like a ton I'm looking forward to still for the rest of the year. I'm waiting for interesting things to kind of pop up and surprise me. Yeah, uh, maybe after this we could do a quick preview of like what we're looking forward to. Yeah. Uh, let's see. In the meantime, we got a uh, number eight here. Once upon a time in Hollywood, uh, it's dropping out of the box office faster than I would have liked to see. Yeah. Do you feel like this is just this this opening number because it's competing with new stuff and the remainder of the weekend it might catch up? Maybe. Um, That's a always, lot. A like, lot of the stuff above it has a lot of commercial blockbustery appeal, so it it doesn't. I shouldn't be too surprised that it's dropping so much, but it's still disappointing to kind of see because I think it has been the best film of the year um i think i could see that i think you could make that argument at least at least for me again i gotta go back and watch it if you looked at my ratings or my opinion when i first came out of the movie i wouldn't necessarily say that but i've i've considerably warmed up in my mind to it more so especially with all the more positive impressions i see do you feel like over rocket man mm. no i like rocket man more still but i feel like it's more creatively driven oddly enough to say like yeah. I, I like the approach rocket man has but it does fall into the kind of biopic by numbers formula it, a it little too tropes. much yeah and and hollywood does feel like something genuinely original yeah and that's what really works for it more so than anything else this year i think because it has such a distinctive author voice that we're just not getting right now i mean i think dexter fletcher's an incredible genius for rocket man but i think that there's something new and individualistic about Hollywood that isn't quite tropey. Right. It does feel like Fletcher is still, especially with the Rocket Man, working within the confines of studio, you know, represent, you know, uh, what, what they'll allow for the film there, as opposed to Tarantino, who basically just gives a middle finger and tells Sony to suck it up and take his film. <laughs> <laughs> and Tarantino is one of the last guys that could just kind of make what what he wants, like, we're seeing lately with like Jojo Rabbit that they're already getting the Disney notes like, oh, the producers are uncomfortable with your film about a child befriending Hitler. I don't know. Why, why the hell would they be uncomfortable with Hitler? Why would Disney even take 
that film. I get that they want to keep ties <coughs> with Taika. Like, that that may have been something in his contract. He's like, alright, I'll direct the next Thor film as well, oh, but it's, you it's gotta the, do this movie. It's the Fox hold, holdover thing, so they're just dealing with Is it. Is it? Oh, it's already I done. wasn't sure if it was. Okay, that, that makes more sense. If but, it were halfway finished, I'm sure they'd interrupt right now. Well, they cancelled, like, everything else. Right. You know, they cancelled, like, 500 projects or something. Well, the best way not to be associated with Hitler is to act like him. Yeah. I don't know. It's... Uh, the bigger Disney grows, the scarier it kind of gets, as we can see by the box office representation as well. I think they're probably terrified, too, because the only things working are remakes. I mean, they probably don't want to be making... Their directors don't want to be making remakes the rest of their lives. They want to make new projects, but if that's all people go to see, that's all they can make, so yeah. go support something else. Well, I mean, we got... It's not really a remake next, but it's it's in the kind of the same vein. But you get to comment on this one. This is number yeah, seven. Yeah, I do. Is uh, Dora in the Lost City of Gold? That's my daughter's first live action. Well, she saw the Penguins documentary, but she didn't sit yeah, there because she, she, she made penguin Dora. noises. And we had to leave. <laughs> did she make Dora noises this time? Yeah, yeah. She did the swiper, no swiping, and um, she spoke fluent Spanish by the time we walked out. I know you said she had to wake you up a couple times during it. Yeah, there was one point near the end. I feel like it drifts off, but it's a really solid. You saw the cast of it. You yeah, well, it's right? crazy cast. Well, for one thing, I'm impressed by is that not only do you get some real star power in there, but you get some real uh, ethnic representation there. Yeah. Like it's an all Mexican cast. I was super impressed that it doesn't really play around with that stuff. It's not like, oh, let's teach you Spanish. It's like they'll just speak in Spanish it's when an, it makes sense in context. So it's just like a straight up. Rip off Indiana Jones adventure film with, yeah. with Dora in Spanish. <laughs> Dora decides to go to the high school world, and she's she's older, obviously. She's grown with her audience, which is great. That's and nice. uh, they go to an archaeology museum, and she's trying to prove that she knows the mo- most about the old cultures and finds an Egyptian exhibit, and they get captured and brought back to her home with her new friends. So they get to go explore that. And uh, my favorite part of the movie... They go into a field of trippy mushrooms. <laughs> Their heads grow 20 times the size, and they become the Dora cartoon characters. So they look like the cartoon characters? They do, but it's like a trippy, really kind of scary version of it. My daughter's eyes went completely wide. Like, <laughs> like her eyes went as big as the characters. It, it was hilarious. Um, and I couldn't believe it. It went like full-blown cartoon, and then, then they're like fading out and waking up, and then it's kind of Indiana Jones tropes, but... Before it gets to the Indiana Jones tropes, um, I have to make a big claim that it's better than something like, uh, what's the last one, Crystal Skull? Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry for Graham. Um, I'm glad we could do this a week he wasn't here, but Dora the Explorer, better than New Indiana Jones. Well, I don't think he's that attached. It's Temple of Doom we like to argue about with him. Mm -hmm. I wonder how, does it measure up to something like Romancing the Stone, which is my favorite Indiana Jones knockoff? I don't. I don't think it. It's quite there. I mean, I give it like a like a gentleman six. Like <laughs> I'm like this is a okay movie, and I'm gonna agree that I'm gonna rewatch it with my daughter for the next twenty years. So that's good. <laughs> I hope she really gonna watch it for twenty years. You never know when they're you know when they're going to have kids. Like, I mean, that's that's true. There are films I still watch when I saw when I was like five that I'm I'm still rewatching. I mean, I hope she has like kids before the world ends if that's what she wants to do. Because I'll just tell her you have to have them now because. Later on, yeah, the world won't exist. We, we got twelve years for the planet before it blows up. So, jeez, oh, I'm not going to rush her. <laughs> All right, uh, number six here. 
Uh, on the other end of the spectrum of children's entertainment is Angry Birds Movie 2. Which has twice the Rotten Tomato score of Where to Go Bernadette. Where'd you go, Bernadette? Which is surprising. That's that's sad. <laughs> is it? <laughs> Where'd you go, Bernadette? Might just be the biggest bomb of the summer. I mean, I don't know much about Bernadette, so maybe it does deserve that score, but... What do you know about Angry Birds? Uh, it's a mobile game that they're turning into a movie for money. <laughs> you flick birds at pigs. Yeah. It sounds like a regular day over in Hong Kong right now. It must be a great couple hours at the movies. I'm not going <laughs> to fuck with that. I don't know. I, I have nothing to say about this. It's a cheapy cash grab movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving up here, top five of the box office here. We got Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. That's the Project Del Toro's been working... Um, working on with a different director. Yeah, I think it's a, a shame that... I mean, we're, we're uh, kind of doing it too, but, you know, we keep uh, labeling this as a Del Toro project, and we don't even know yeah. who the director is. Right. Um, I think that's the, what they want. That really. is. I mean, that's what they're doing with the advertising. They're I just... think that's how studios are winning lately, because I saw, like, that new, that new Terminator trailer, and it's like, producer James Cameron, Cameron returns, right? Mm-hmm. They don't even care who the director is here. See, this is why, because uh, it would be impossible for me to pronounce this director's okay. name. Andre I, Overdale. I don't even, is that how you say that? Oh, it's an O with a cross through it. I don't even know what country that's from. I mean, I don't need to pronounce made-up letters. <laughs> what else has he directed, though? Uh, Troll Hunter and okay. The Autopsy of Jane Doe. That that's was a okay. significant one. Yeah. Yeah. Autopsy of Jane Doe. I remember my my wife was just watching in bed. She was scared to death. I haven't I haven't quite watched it. I heard great things, but I heard it was really scary. But uh, that's fine. And it looks like they went pretty true to the original drawings. So that should be a fun time. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's not one I'll see, but lots of horror films lately. And yeah, this one seems four. this one seems scarier than Goosebumps. So at yeah, at least that. Yeah. The first Goosebumps was a lot of fun, but this looks like it's better, like, training wheels or so take your kids out to it if you... Alright. Number four here, we have uh, the sequel to 47 Meters Down. This one's called Uncaged. I'm not sure where you're supposed to go, because 47 Meters Down is where the ocean's floor is, right? So Is it? Yeah, so... I'm not an oceanographer. It's, I am an ocean oceanographer. And I know that this one gives them, like, the tanks and stuff, so it doesn't really matter that they go down so far. It's not as threatening, but they take them out of a cage, so I guess that's the plot device. Okay, so this is... The first one had the star power of, like, Mandy Moore and Matthew Modine in it. (laughs) What does this one have? Um, I I don't know, because the first one didn't really do anything with those people. No, it's got a fairly low rating, and the second one is actually even lower right now, with only 315 reviews. Though I've heard... I haven't quite heard what it is, but I know the first one, I've seen the first one, it has a very like, kitschy ending, and I guess this one ends in a really interesting way, so I might go to the theater just because I like sharks during the summer. Yeah, I know your your big favorite movie of the last couple of years has been The Meg, right? The Meg, <laughs> which I had to keep re-watching until we got to Crawl, so... Mm-hmm. So here we got more shark movies. Uh, I don't know what... Did Sharknado start this shark revival craze? Um, I think it may have. I think I think Sharknado Nado kind of found a niche. It was like, well, we could still do something new here. We didn't have to stop making this. Mm-hmm. And then everyone else just like, okay, that, but more serious. Right. And so now we have a, a ton of shark movies that nobody has. Or I think the only decent one to come out of it, really, 
has been the shallows, right? Yeah, the shallows, and then crawl was really good, but that's alligators. Right. Uh, there hasn't been. I mean, the Meg is rewatchable. It's what you think it is. It's not good, though. <laughs> no, there's nothing good about it. It's just what you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, number three? Uh, I only got time to talk about number three today. Run out of time, so just real quick. So Lion King, and we'll move on. Oh, yeah. We said so much Yeah. Um, on the site. Kevin's reviewed it, and really he used all the words that we don't have time to use. No, and, don't have any time right now. So moving straight on to number two here, which is uh, Fast and Furious, Hobbs and Shaw. Um, Calvin and Hobbs is... <laughs> You understand that I got that my entire life because I'm, I'm Calvin and I should name the dogs Hobbs. the dog Hobbs. Oh, you should have. He even kind of looks like him if he had stripes, big stripes on him. Yeah, because he's kind of like the golden orange color. Yeah, no, he's got that. that I, I see it. And he's got the, the kind of physique. I agree with you. Your dog is very Hobbs like. And you said Rhodesian Ridgebacks are so strong they could get run over by trucks. So. <laughs> I think I think my fiance said that there was a story about that that he walked away, you know, without any scratches. But I don't know about that. I have not seen any case of that. Yeah, my guy has a bullet in the ear already. Jesus, I, mean, I don't know what happened in Texas where where uh, he came from, but he has a BB. He's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fast and Furious is going to be back next year, so um, I'm not too worried that this one didn't but, really fulfill my needs. Are they doing a ninth one next year? Yeah, ninth is already shooting, and it's like probably halfway through shooting so uh, i'm more excited about that um this is a rock movie i mean people go see those yeah i mean he's got probably the highest star power of anyone right now i'd say yeah um he's definitely making the most money i can't think of a bigger pull right now it also has kevin hart he's a he's a little bit miserable in it no no kevin hart yeah in fast and furious yeah he has like bit parts where he comes and makes jokes and stuff he does I didn't know about this. Yeah, I don't know if I included it in my review. It seemed like spoilery, but after a few weeks, it's like, let's break it down. Right. Yeah, he shows up on the plane, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to be your, your agent. I'm going to help you guys, and he does, he's ineffective. That feels kind of out of place comedically for a Fast and Furious movie. Yeah, it's it's not in place at all. I mean, Kevin Hart really... He had that, he had that comedy earlier this year with Brian Cranston that was okay, though. Mm-hmm. The, the Untouchables one? Yeah, well, I can't remember what the this Upside Down. Yeah. <laughs> was it called Upside Down? It was downside or something like oh, that? Oh, The Downside, yeah. He was in The Downside. That was his best comedy. I'm, I'm going to look it up now because I have that tool. And there was a night school last year where he played in a chicken uniform. And he was like the chicken mascot for the KFC, which seemed like a kind of racist thing to do. Up The Upside. I had it backwards. Yeah, The Upside Down. <laughs> um... You don't need to go see that, though. Go watch the French movie. And just like this, you need to go watch the... Uh, the <laughs> it feels ridiculous, because Fast and Furious isn't really, like, top kino anyway. It's not like you're going to go get a very significant experience going back to Fate and the Fast and Furious. So mm-hmm. Once The Rock joined, it was a different kind of movie. Certainly, it uh, seems to be that they just kind of dropped all pretenses at that point. Yeah, it just <laughs> became a big action movie about a big cast. and uh, Hopefully it recovers next year. All right, so you have to tell me about this top one because uh, I don't know anything about it, which surprises me every every bit more that it uh, became number one here at the slot this week, and that's Good Boys. You know Stranger Things? Yes. What if they said fuck a lot? Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a movie. That is, is that the logline for it? Yeah, that's my logline. Uh, it's weird because uh, the boys in this movie I was telling you last night they wear so much makeup 
mm-hmm. their that their lips look pallid, like they look like they're being prepared by an undertaker. It looks like they're lifeless. I don't even know if you could see in those screenshots, but um, it's. I saw it a little bit early. It's okay. Uh, I had some genuine laughs out of it, and uh, I like when the guy comes up and yells, "Hey, Stranger Things, fuck off!" That that's pretty funny. That's what somebody yeah. says. Yeah, because their kids on a bike, and oh. that's what Stranger Things is. Uh, I'm kind of tired of drones in movies. Are you? Drones? Is that a comic? I don't watch new movies, man. <laughs> yeah, every all the movies I watched, drones didn't exist yet. Right. Um, yeah, so all new movies seem to have, like, an Under the Silver Lake bit where they go spy on people with drones, and then there's, like, a whole drone plot line, and uh, I we already don't like... We decided we don't like the movies where they film them with drones. There's so many, like, empty overhead shots now. It's like when they first figured out how to film from overhead, you'd get a lot of uh, gimmicky shots. So drones are a not very useful technique. I mean, I haven't seen them used very efficiently, so... I don't like at all when they become a huge plot point of the movie. You would think that with the that technology of drones, like we would see them incorporated more into a kind of a cinematic sense. But maybe we do, and we just don't realize that that's what we're seeing instead of a crane shot, for instance. But I don't know. My favorite was the um, woman at war when the drones were spying on her, and she put the Nelson Mandela mask on. Although I called it a Morgan Freeman mask. In my <laughs> I was review. trying to fix that in your review. That would have been embarrassing. <laughs> That one was very funny. Yeah, so I, I don't, I'm surprised. I guess I'm not that surprised Good Boys would do well. I mean, it's kind of the time for that. We're in between Strange Things and It. And yes. this is both of those movies put together. Mm-hmm. With it doesn't lot. look like it has any supernatural element to No, it doesn't. Though. So no, it's, just it's just like a... It's like super bad kids. Yeah, I was like, everything like that. Well, we just compared Booksmart to super bad as well. Yeah, I, it's straight up str- super bad. But uh, Well, I mean, it even says so on the poster. You does know, it? From the... The guys who brought you super bad neighbors and sausage. Party. Okay, I didn't know they had that. Um, yeah, that pedigree because it makes sense because that's all it is. Uh, like it must put, be this tall to see the movie. Look okay. how big they put the R rating in the center of the poster. Like they're <laughs> proud of this R rating here. They want you to know that this is like an R rated kids movie. The R rating is as big as the logo in the poster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's that's the whole part of that. Yeah, um, that seems like the hook of it. I don't know, like anyone involved here. No, you don't. You don't need to. Um, it's it's fine. Are these kids from anything? I don't think they're from anything. I think they're just kids. Well, one of these guys was the kid in Room. Yeah, he's not from anything. And he was in Predator as well. Never heard of it. He was in Twilight Zone just recently. What do you? Oh mean? yeah, he played the 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 president in Twilight Zone. They elected him president. And he's he's one of the kids in Book of Henry, like a younger kid, not like actually Henry. Yeah, like I said, they probably don't have any film experience. Just mm-hmm. picked them up off the street. The kids are okay in it. They just wear a lot of makeup and look funny. Yeah, all right. Well, uh, let's move on to movies I do know about, huh? Um, yeah, so I hadn't seen this before. Yeah, so this was... We decided since you were down this week, we'd uh, watch a film that you otherwise wouldn't have access to. This uh, particular Hitchcock film, Notorious, is uh, notoriously hard to find. Uh, basically... You can't stream it anywhere. You can't rent it. Uh, it's really only available through the formats you can buy it, which is mostly just reserved to that really nice Criterion Blu-ray that just got put out at the beginning of this year. It has the really dope, significant shot of her holding um, the key behind his back. Yep, that, that nice one on the cover there that you see, which is a, a great shot uh, in the film itself. 
And again, this was your kind of your first time doing this. I know we hyped you up a lot because both me and Graham, who was on here last week, really enjoy this as one of our favorite Hitchcock films. Um, I could see why going in that it has the pieces of a great Hitchcock film. Yeah, I think it might be one you you may want to spend more time with in the future to get. I I did notice you know a bit that it, it didn't quit or click quite like something like uh, Vertigo, for instance, which of course is like not at all, yeah, top of the chain. But you know sometimes that's not always the case. But you did still thoroughly enjoy it. I don't want to give the impression otherwise that you didn't. I think the thing is that it has pieces that are greater than like the sum of its parts here because there's not like a through line of suspense like Vertigo like. It's not like a constant dread. There are like two scenes with, with high end suspense, and the rest is like character building toward those. Well, there there is. I think there is a through line of suspense in the the idea of being exposed as the the spy. So basically, the the plot of the film is you know if I can summarize it real quick, that you've got uh, Cary Grant and Bergman who have kind of fallen in love, even though he's recruiting her for a spy mission because her German father, uh, you know, had connections with people who are now in other Nazis and. Brazil, and so the idea is that she's supposed to infiltrate through her father's old friends to get information about what they're planning after the war, you know, which we end up finding is seems to be uh, testing with uh, uranium. It seems to find out in one of the more famous thriller sequences of the film. It's like a very early Mission Impossible. <laughs> I guess you can look at it that way. It is. It's like that kind of espionage and suspense. That yeah, it, it doesn't it have like the... the TV show theme music though it was definitely more of a kind of no, romantic tragedy kind of story. The music, in fact, different from most Hitchcock, is very subdued at the beginning. It takes a long time for it to even crescendo into anything. Yeah, actually, I believe this is not uh, one of his signature Herman scores. No, no this one's no. done by someone called Roy Webb. That's why he hit it till the end. Yeah, it's uh, he doesn't. I mean, Webb has lots of credits here, but he's not like a he's not significant composer, and it's all again very minimal. It's much more about the tension between the characters. You're right in saying that it's less about the plot, even though yeah. it is significant here, but much more about that because really a lot more of the tension comes in the love triangle aspects of it, especially between Grant's Devlin and Bergman's uh, Alicia. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a good feeling between. Uh, Bergman Grant, and then we have Claude Rains as a as a guy she's going to marry and go get intel from. So yes, he's the the second time he's playing a very friendly Nazi. <laughs> Some people just become friendly Nazis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the the great thing about this is Hitchcock's eye for uh, just setting a shot and for editing. Uh, this is extremely well edited, um, and I think that holds up any like rough spots and the suspense building because uh, I feel like the characters get to know something and we don't have like a aha moment until later. Right. Like there, it's like the if it, if there is suspense, it really drops the ball on delivering on that. Like oh, you have that like that big, you know, aha moment with it. I think there are instances of it. It's just not as in your face as other instances. Like there is a good moment throughout because because usually it's not like characters literally exclaiming it. It's usually shown to us in a in a shot where something's revealed like. Uh, there is the moment early on when uh, Alicia's kind of... There, there's a meeting between the various Nazis officials and one of the guys comes by and he's freaking out about a bottle. Yeah. A wine bottle that's just sitting out. And they, the rest of the kind of uh, businessmen around him kind of escort him into another room and you see Alicia in this shot kind of slowly zooms in towards this bottle and 
that's our key moment to kind of be all like, aha, there's something here. There's an important thing with that. But it's not her explaining it. And then later on, she tells us how he was acting weird about this bottle. Right. Which eventually leads us to the famous wine cellar sequence. But it is, so I think that is throughout, but it's done in that much more Hitchcock way where it's all visually communicated through close-ups on uh, props, various props, mm-hmm. which there is, of course, lots of notorious is littered with various important props. Yeah, it's it's very high on um, prop motivations, which um, always seems like, I don't know, it's like a shortcut for Hitchcock to find the suspense. Well, he basically, that's, that's kind of a big thing he coined, you know, that was the idea of the uh, the MacGuffin. He's, <coughs> very, he's very famous for uh, his coinage of the term or usage of it throughout. And, it, and there's all sorts of MacGuffins throughout his film, you know, various significant objects that drive the plot forward in motion. Yeah, he loves a red herring in a MacGuffin. Mm-hmm. And um, I I feel like a lot of the acting gets to be done through like, uh, like body language and their eyes especially, especially Grant, who acts mostly with his face here. Grant is phenomenal in this film. This is probably my favorite Grant performance because it's so very un-Grant. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's very intimidating and borderline abusive here, kind of. Like, he's an emotionally abusive, standoffish character, but still a romantic person which is this very interesting juxtaposition and usually grant's known for his uh, comedic roles like he really only did serious stuff with hitchcock like he did this and then suspicion like mm-hmm. five years before with him which is similar in its uh, this devilishness and, yeah this and suspicion actually have a lot in common yeah a lot in their build-up mm-hmm. um yeah. and i think that grant gets to do a lot of good stuff with bergman here because uh, they just play off each other so nicely. Like, they don't have to talk. Like, that moment where he's just, like, getting on the phone and they're, like, rubbing faces is... Oh, you know, yeah. it's, like, really alluring. That it's like they're they're sitting as close as we are now, which is making this uncomfortable now that we're <laughs> looking into each other's eyes. We're actually starting to rub faces. We are. And, like, we're talking on the telephone. And it's weird because they just start kissing and it... Um, I don't know, it's kind of hot that way because... You know, you get to see Ingrid's appeal and how she's really drawing him in. Um, she, she really was one of the most seductive actresses of not only that time, but potentially just in all of cinema. Like, she just has this electric screen presence that you can't help but be allured to. Yeah, some people just don't fit on a screen, and then there's people like Ingmar Bergman who, in- like, Ingrid. fill Ingrid, sorry. <laughs> other, there's another Swedish person. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, sorry. <laughs> who fill the entirety of the screen, and you get... Um, you get like that big, like that big moment of oh man, this person's just made for this. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly agree. And again, you know, one of my favorite things is I remember being caught with the film the first time seeing it was Grant's kind of uh, entrance in the film. It's very sinisterly shot. Yeah, like, the first thing we see is just this this shadowy background of Grant. Yeah, as he's like kind of crashed this party, and then there is that great shot later when she's drunk, you know, after being taken home from the car incident, and you've got that insanely tilted shot I think I'm going to use that shot for the the cover of this one on the site because mm-hmm. I, I love that shot and then it does I don't know if you caught that that where there's that weird spin move as he approaches her yeah like the whole camera zooms it's this crazy kind of subjective shot and it's uh, very disarming I think it shows that um, Hitchcock understands framing and he's able to create such a foreboding sense around Grant, it's like a dark cloud follows him around the screen. Right, even though he is a principal protagonist, a good character in the film, but they they shoot him in a very menacing way, and it and that 
gives to his character, especially because he has a great kind of jealousy throughout the film, and he's very yes. passive aggressive towards her, and intentionally, uh, emotionally manipulative. Ma- manipulative. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting because there's that duality going on of is it about espionage or is it about love that really moves through the film and when you shoot someone like that to intro them that informs everything you'll think about the character from then on right oh and it's not like you want the relationship to go like like you're torn between who she should end up with because obviously you don't want her with claude reigns the nazi (laughs) yeah (laughs) but you definitely wonder if they're meant to be together i mean devlin and uh alicia throughout the film like if they truly do care about each other because devlin's so emotionally closed off like he can't even say i love you throughout the first bit of the film he he, like gives the impression of that but still can't say the words so it's almost like he's uncomfortable with himself there and then it puts the whole relationship in even further strains when she has to go off and marry the guy that they're spying on and it i mean it doesn't help that um reigns is more in love with his mother which is that usual Hitchcock trope. Yeah, that. Uh, you I know, mean, he's more in a relationship with his mom than he is, ever ends up being with her. Right. He he foolishly falls head over heels for Bergman. Oh. oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but his mom is the kind of manipulative, you know, person always over his shoulder trying to, you know, make things go right for him. He's he's such a mama's boy throughout it, but it really does create this even further conflict of all the relationships, which all you know kind of come together and clash in different ways. Yeah, um, I think their their chemistry ends up being interesting too. What Ingrid and Reigns end up doing, mm-hmm. their on screen presence together is very conflicted. Right, because you you never get the sense again that it's a romantic partnership there. But, but he, I could, he clearly has an infatuation, but she's obviously just kind of going through the motions and, yeah, and if, just kind of giving him the impression. If there if these were real people, I could see her believability though. I could see why she would, why he would buy into that or why what. What what about her would appeal to him? Well, at that point, then, you've got to take into account at some point there that maybe he just doesn't want to consider that she doesn't actually love him until he has to. Like, there's no other option other than that. Yeah. But it's that idea that, you know, he's so infatuated with her that it blinds him from everything else. And I think what I mean when I say there's not, like, a lot of suspense is this is one where we know everything well ahead of the characters, right? Like, nothing's really hidden from us. Yeah, I mean, essentially because you have, like, you just establish up front that these are Nazis that we're trying to investigate. Like, so whatever nefarious things they're up to, like, it's not going to be shocking. Like, oh, they're, you know, storing uranium and figuring out what they can do with that. It doesn't matter. It's not like a a big shocking reveal thing, but it is a a nice progressive uh, in actions there, especially the way in which it unfolds. That particular sequence is... Uh, one of the the best suspense sequences that uh, Hitchcock has ever done. Which part? The ending? No, uh, we'll, we'll get to the ending here. Okay. But we want to talk about the wine cellar first, which yeah. opens like it opens with that fantastic crane shot from the top of the stairs, yeah, all the way down to a, a really big close up of uh, of her, Bergman's hand yeah, with the key hand in with it, the key. which is elegant. That's a, a fantastically large shot, especially with how. Uh, strained the focus ends up getting at times like you know you really gotta especially then you know like maintain the focus of that to go from such a wide shot to an intense close-up like that yeah is the camera just moving in there because it doesn't even yeah it doesn't feel zooming it go it's it's a crane so it it goes from the top of the stairs and descends all the way down Mm -hmm. like right up against her 
and it gets in so close and then you have the key and that's like a well that's significant because that builds the tension because uh, she's holding it in one hand and uh, Sebastian will pull like her other hand and then like kiss the palm and then she right. throws the other hand like around his back like well, sloppily and like and that's a lot of the suspense sequences throughout. There's small moments of suspense where someone might be revealed or things like that. So those are good moments like that. But yeah, it's, one hard, of, it's hard for me to say it has no suspense because it has at least three that I think are some of its best. Right. So. One of my favorite things about the the cellar sequence, because it's when Devlin shows up to this party here so they can figure out what's going on with the wine bottle that they found out about there. And I think what's genius about it especially is that there's a ticking clock within the scene that's very unconventional. You know how most suspense sequences, like you'll set up like a bomb that has to go off in a certain amount of time. In this particular sequence, you know, instead of a very specifically timed thing, it's how fast are the champagne bottles going to run out before they have to go down to the cellar and get more (laughs) and thus, you know, catch them in the act. It's funny because they start showing them like (laughs) bringing around like increasingly full trays of, they end up having like 50 glasses on this tray. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh man, this stuff's draining fast. Right, they they constantly check in. You're like, you think you'll have enough, you know, bottles for us and they're like, I don't know. And you can see like they start up with like uh, (laughs) 20 or something in the ice chest. Yeah. And it's slowly like they'll cut back every so often and, you know, it's like, you know, five less more and now we're getting down to it and then we get to the point and they're, they're almost out of there. Like, Again, it's that perfect thing. Nobody did it better than Hitchcock of really pulling the most tension out of you know a scene like that. And it's great because that's not the real tension. Like uh, that ends up being the tension of the moment that builds the scene. But then once Alexander or Sebastian arrives down there, um, the the real tension ends up being the love triangle, which is what they really care about. Right, and that's the thing. So you know the fact that he was scrounging around in the uh, the wine cellar isn't really the the big significant thing. There is that. And they use the cover of the, you know, relationship between Devlin and Alicia yeah. as the kind of the climax on that to kind of really hammer home this. And they they use it as a kind of cover-up for what they're really doing, but it also speaks to the actual uh, conflict going on. And I think that's the really interesting dynamic of Notorious, is that you've got this interesting spy plot, but it's masqueraded by a phony love plot that's actually a real love plot, which is the thing you really care about the <laughs> It's good because there's the there's a sense that that's building up to something between um, Grant and Ingrid, and and that's the real payoff is that he comes down, and sees them kissing, right? Right. That's the big payoff of that uh, big sequence there, and that kind of reveal. And then when he comes back around, we get the key thing, and then um, because it, it does not take him much to figure out what actually happened no. there with it. I mean, he goes in and he sees the year is different on one of his sand bottles, right? Because they all say, like, what, 1934, and then like, one says 1940. Yeah, I think those are the dates are close enough anyway. And so then afterwards he finds the the broken one underneath, because that's the great moment of tension underneath where Devlin's looking through all the the dates on the papers where they keep things organized, and he accidentally knocks over the the bottle, and that's how he finds the uranium. Right. Um, and that's funny because those are all, like, those are words that you expect from, like, a spy thriller, and... This ends up being like Hitchcock's Mission Impossible if uh, if North by Northwest is his James Bond. Yeah, I, I see that. Again, both before any of those things were even right. a concept. But you could see how this one could have inspired that, and that one would inspire Bond. I certainly think that uh, 
many of the Mission Impossibles to you know owe a debt to the, the tension created, if not directly through then inadvertently. Well, especially because you start with De Palma, right? So, right. And he's such a That's Hitchcock true. case. That, you can draw such a direct line there. Yeah. De Palma did the first Mission Impossible. Yeah. He's the biggest Hitchcock fanboy in the world. And it's all, you know, no guns. It's all Hitchcock elements and props. And You're right. I don't think there's actually a single gun in, in Notorious. Mm. No, there's not, is there? Um which is interesting because even in a lot of the older films, you know, guns are still such an integral thing, especially with these kind of thriller films. Uh, you know, there's guns in... Uh, and that's the Mission Impossible one. thing, too. Because yeah. De Palma was like, well, I want Bond without the guns. Mm-hmm. And I want, like, a, well, it's like an erotic thriller, which this kind of is, too. Right. This is a very erotic. Again, the romance is so much more an important facet than the actual political thriller aspects of it. So there's a piece I want to write now about how this and Mission Impossible are tied together. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, not to get fixated on that, because this has so much left in it after that wine cellar. Right, Well, because the, there's the whole um, poisoning subplot that kind of goes on there and the continual yeah. waning of their relationships. Because, like I said, it doesn't take long for Sebastian to figure out that you know, she took the key and she's actually an American agent, but he can't say anything about it because he'll get exposed to his Nazi friends and they'll just fucking kill him for letting an American agent in there. Boy, I love poisoning movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, like a, like Phantom Thread, and I could see how that's also drawing something off Notorious. Oh, I think uh, Phantom Thread especially, it's got a, it, the, the aesthetic of it reminds me very much of these kind of Hitchcock films. And what's the other one that Sofia Coppola did? The, the, for, the Begotten, the uh, the one where Beguiled? he poisons her. Beguiled, yeah. yeah. The remake of that old uh, Clint Eastwood starring picture. So. Mm-hmm. Um, that that also seems to take, especially that one takes a lot out of this. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, that's always fairy tale stuff too. It's like the poisoning thing. So, right. Well, it kind of reminds you of something like the poison apple from yeah. Snow White. Right. Exactly. Um, and love and poisoning always seem to go together in a really classical way. Uh, Romeo and Juliet. Another, I guess. Yeah, I say that very easily. That's a uh, definitely a connection. Yeah, like cinematically, when it's about jealousy, because poison ends up being good. Um, nicely analogous for someone's like passion and misdirected uh, anger towards someone they love yeah kind of uh, I, get, I get that totally and especially that's the case here you know Sebastian feels betrayed because not only is, you know she obviously have an intimate connection with uh, Devlin but also she's a damn spy and betraying him in basically every way possible so uh, you know then his mother of course the domineering mother comes in and comes up with a plan to Slowly kill her in a secretive way that won't expose, won't ever expose her as the American agent, and thus get Devlin killed. Yeah, um, and they start with it, and again, the, the way they reveal it, like they don't say specifically how they're going to do it, but they they do this great panning shot from uh, Sebastian over immediately to her cup, her coffee cup, and he's insisting <laughs> on her drinking the coffee. Yeah. Even though she, and then she's expressing how she doesn't feel good. So immediately you make that connection that the two are intertwined because you match the the audio of that confirmation with the the image of the coffee. So you see where it's coming from without ever actually saying yeah, we're poisoning it, the coffee. It establishes it at least four times, so you can't really miss what what it means. Right, and then it continues to pan. The shot goes from him, the coffee, to her you know, feeling sickly, and then over to Sebastian's mother. So it and connects all the pieces in one smooth shot, which, is, again, is brilliant storytelling. And it's funny because it brings you back to Grant's, un, you know, 
how unbelieving he is of her. It's also a jealousy picture of how he treats women. Oh, yeah. Like, he, he thinks was... that she's so floozy and that she was so promiscuous in her past life that, you know, all this poisoning is just a result of her just being loose again. Mm-hmm. And he... that's, that's really disgusting about his character. Oh, I do think, I think uh, Devlin is, is not a character you admire necessarily, mm-hmm. but you, uh, and I think that's what's so great about the performance, that he's a bastard. He's a goddamn bastard because of how uh, fickle he is about what he wants and how he gets about it. He's, like I said, an emotional abuser. He's, you know, very mean to Alicia throughout because He's of his jealousy. Inglorious bastard. <laughs> it also reminded me of, like, I think there's a poisoning in that one. But anyway. Yeah. Um, I think the other big thing we, we, we do want to wrap up with is that I, I know kind of throughout the film you were kind of checking in or out of times, not always with it, but the ending really seemed to leave an impression with you. I think the um, if you go read Graham's uh, piece on the Hitchcock best shot scenes, then you'll see that's his number one, and I think it's for good reason. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with that. When I first read over when I was editing his piece, and so he cho- chose that one as number one, I instantly agreed with it, even over the wine cellar sequence in this film, because... Uh, what's most impressive about it is how much tension is pulled out of it for how simple it is. It's not like yeah. a set piece sequence or anything. It's not like a big thrilling chase. Like he opens it with a, a big piece from like foreign correspondent, which is kind of about hiding around corners and this big windmill set, which is grand and great. But this one is just people walking down the stairs. Yeah, and it's like um, it's like a movie where they have a gun to your head uh, and they're walking you down the stairs, but. Uh, it's more like the guns pointed towards Sebastian, so you get like the ending context of how that's going to be. I do, I do feel like what's great about it is this perfect pacing and balance of who the pressure is on because it kind of starts out on Devlin and um, Alicia there, yeah, because they, they come out and it's like they're caught. You know, he's at the top of the stairs, he's got them. How are we going to get to the bottom without you know like getting you know taken away? Yeah, then he figures that it's the associates at the bottom that don't know about the poisoning yet, so they're able to you know utilize that to yeah they're able to, to turn the tables around on him. So suddenly you know it puts Sebastian on the defense as he has to explain you know who who Devlin is, why he's here, and why he's taking Alicia away. And I think it's nice that it ends with a descent in some way. Yeah, it's a descent. It's almost like it does feel like a kind of descent into uh, these kind of murky waters here. You've got these, uh, you know, the Nazis all at the bottom waiting to, you know, potentially throttle any of them, yeah. you know, depending on who uh, exposes themselves. And I feel like it's largely a movie about how men come to power and um, how they're empowered um, and how they maintain that. So to end it with a descent where there's a power play that ends up revoking all of Sebastian's power that's instilled with him politically and socially. That's, I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. I think what's nice about it as well is that it's uh, it's a culmination of everything. We have all of our players here, everyone coming down the staircase, all the important people we've named. You know, we've got Devin, Alicia, and Sebastian are all here, plus Sebastian's mother, who's trying to help him and kind of cover mm-hmm. up for what's going on. Everyone's in a pickle in this situation, and it's just this prolonged descent down the stairs. It feels longer than the staircase ever probably was. Yeah, because they, the, they move so slowly and with such a trained camera over them that um, you could really feel it mounting. Mm-hmm, it's very methodical, and, like, there's a lot of pause between the moments. Like, you know, the, the Nazis downstairs will ask questions, and it'll be a few seconds before one of them can muster up an answer because they don't 
know exactly what to say or how to say something without exposing what's going on. And Hitchcock always like likes to end a movie like like that. That gives you something satisfying to walk away with. One of the things that usually Hitchcock is, is notoriously not great with endings. He does not have good denouement. Uh, you know, sometimes they just kind of end. I think one of the ones I think about is like North by Northwest just yeah. kind of races to an ending. We go from almost falling off a cliff at Mount Rushmore yeah, it's like to it, getting into the car, the train at the end so we can get that. It's uh, like it crashes at the end. Like it's just, oh, okay, it's done. Whereas this one does feel like a really satisfying conclusion. You know, we get Alicia out of there and we lock the, uh, Sebastian out of the car and he's got to go back. He Like he turns back and faces the not you know the Nazis waiting for him and they kind of indicate that they kind of know what's going on because mm-hmm. there's no phone there's no way he you know like Devlin says something about calling the hospital they're like there's no ho- you know there's, there's no, no phone. phone in the bedroom yeah. yeah there's no way he could have and so all the pieces come together and you know that Sebastian's just done he's going to get you know murdered but like the other guys were yeah um, I feel like that's one that, I feel like it's probably his best final shot um whatever I had going into that um I was still somewhat uncertain about the movie like I was probably floating around like a 7 or um, a low 8 but I, I think it's like a strong 8 now with that ending mm-hmm. I think if you go back once you watch it again and you'll be able to catch more of some of the plot that is there and dig the characters even more than you did like that's how I felt because I gave this an 8 the first time I watched it but definitely a second viewing I'm like oh, oh yeah. this was even better than I thought it was I mean I don't want to give the impression that I'm not going to like pick it up in Criterion now because I have so much curiosity about it and it's worth studying right I think uh, it's I think it's probably his personally I think it's probably his uh, Hitchcock's first true masterpiece mm-hmm. you know we revere him mostly for a lot of his big 50s films you know yeah. stuff like Rear Window and Vertigo and uh, North by Northwest, but this one, you know, which he did in 1946, it well, it really shows how much not only he grew as a filmmaker, but what was to come. I think I'd still put like Strangers on a Train and Psycho and Rope and North by Northwest and Rear Window and all of that just ahead of it, and then put this in like the B tier. Right. Well, it's 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 hard it's like, to say because those are all great films. Those yeah, are all fantastically right? unique and different films from Hitchcock. And just because this isn't one of my favorites of all time, it doesn't get there. Yeah, and that's a fair that's placement. It. Like, that's the thing is that you don't hear this one talked about as much as stuff like Rear Window or Rope or whatever. No, but it's so, not Vertigo. It's... And But I think it's more so because, like we said, this film is so hard to get a hold of. You had yeah. to come down here just to watch it, you know? This is the only reason I came to Portland, so I'm all leave now. And <laughs> it's been nice, though. Well, I'm glad you could come down to at least watch this one movie with me. And we snuck in this podcast in the meantime. We didn't even work on our vocal fry like your no. fiancé advised us. We, we were just going to do that, but instead, we just talked about it like normal. And I felt like it was a very satisfying conversation. Getting your insight kind of on the experience of the film, it was nice to hear. I was, I was kind of waiting around because we made sure not to say anything to each other until we started up the recording here. Well, it's better that way, just have the experience talking on here. Because yeah. it's too easy. And well, sometimes that's what happens, is that we just get into things right afterwards and we're not even recording. We're like, well, shit, there was the whole podcast, but... Yeah, <laughs> it's we don't want to, like, cut before it's ready. Yeah, it's good to just try and get it all out there. So this was satisfying, and I felt like it really, really good works like yeah. this. I don't know, we'll see if we ever get a chance to do this again in the future. I'm sure we'll see each other once again. Hopefully so, so yeah. This was easy enough. It was actually way easier than coordinating it online. Yeah, for sure. And hopefully your editing will be fairly easy as well. Yeah, probably nothing to do. I'll probably, I probably won't even look at it. I'll just put it online. All right. Well, I guess in that case, you'll just hear how we sound right now unedited. All right. Farewell. <laughs>